Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what the God, the Lord, will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is the word of God. Well, good morning again. Welcome. My name is Jonathan. I get to serve as a pastor of our newer church. We are a church plant that is continuing to figure out how to be a church and to be a church plant and to come back from COVID and to rebuild and regather. So thank you, especially for joining us for the first time. We hope to be a community where people feel comfortable coming. If Trinity has been home for a while and you gathered some folks and some friends, we want to be a place where people feel that they can come and explore the heartbeat of the gospel, get to know Jesus, what it means to follow him in this unique modern moment. And so very thankful that you're here. We're going through a summer series that we have entitled, My Heart Cries Out. We've been looking at different cries from the Psalms. And admittedly, this is an emotional season, isn't it? I mean, there's so many different emotions welling up in us. One of the unique emotions that I read about recently in a New York Times piece was this theme of languishing. It says that we haven't been able to quite name what's going on in our world and our society and maybe in our families and heart, but maybe one of those words is languishing. That there's this yearning for growth. There's this yearning for life and for health. There are heart cries coming out of us. And we've been looking at different cries from the Psalms, the honesty of the emotion. And today we're going to look at a unique theme that I am particularly thankful for and have been thinking a lot about and praying a lot about. And it's this theme of revival or of gospel renewal. This church would not exist if we did not believe that God could renew and revive us as a community. But oftentimes the church becomes myopic when we start thinking that it's just about our renewal and our revival and God doing something in us and through us, and I'm coming to consume what he has to give. Yes, he wants to give to us, but the reality is revival is about something much grander. It's about a season of uniqueness where God is on the move, where he's bringing a a restoration and a freshness to our languishing. And maybe in my lifetime, I have not experienced a season like this, whether it's corporately and socially because of the dynamics of COVID, some of the unique things that I have gone through personally this year, but a season of crying out for God to restore and renew and rebuild is a big part of what it means to be a Christian. And I'm so thankful for a place like Psalm 85 where you actually see somebody who has the audacity or maybe just really the courage to raise their voice and say, God, you need to restore us. You got to come in and revive this thing because what's going on in my life, these dynamics are not working. And I do believe that God works in unique seasons. That there are, you know what seasons are? We have like one season here, it's called nice. Right? I'm from the East Coast where we have lots of different seasons, but spirituality often comes and goes in seasons. 
And there are seasons where God feels fresh, where God feels close, where his presence is being experienced. And there are seasons that feel dry and that feel brittle. And oftentimes that's how our heart begins to feel. And so we have to cry out, God, come and do something in us and through us. Scotty Smith says, when our rejoicing in you, God, is displaced with complaining about you and others and anything, when our delighting in you fades into detachment from you and from others and eventually from our own heart, when our love for you atrophies into fading memories of you and then to all kinds of hideous thoughts about you, we are powerless and shut up to your provision. There's no hose, fire hydrant, or reservoir of our own making that can even begin to make a brown heart green again. See, and this is when we need grace renewal. This is when we need the gospel to break through this movement of God upon our lives, our hearts, our community, and our city. So three things I'm going to walk you through from Psalm 85. Number one, we're going to look at the idea of why we need gospel renewal. Number two, we're going to look at what it looks like for God to come in and revive and renew. And then thirdly, we're going to just touch on how we actually go about getting it. So gospel renewal, why we need it, what it looks like, and how we get it. Let me pray for us as we begin. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would move in this space today. It's a gymnasium, but your presence is here. We pray that you would soften us to listen to your word, that we would hear people who have cried out before us in these seasons that are hard and emotional and languishing. We pray that you would meet with each man, each woman, each student, each child. I pray we'd hear the gospel afresh. And I pray that it would break our hearts and then mend us back. Come, O Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So under gospel renewal and why we need it, why don't you look with me at verse 1 again. Verse 1 says this. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all of their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Let me stop there. See, in these early verses of Psalm 85, the writer is remembering God's faithfulness to past generations. We don't know exactly what episode or what part of Israel's history or part of redemptive history he's leaning into. It may be this unique place in Israel's exodus from Egypt where they were redeemed from slavery. Maybe he's remembering the fact that the heavy hand of the Egyptians had been upon God's people and God relieved them. Maybe he's thinking to this more modern moment, at least when this was written, which would have been the exile from in Babylon, that God had redeemed that. God had brought them back home to their own nation, to their own city, that he, after 70 plus years of being in exile, he finally redeemed them and brought them home. Maybe he's thinking about the exodus. Maybe he's thinking about the exile. But whatever the case, he's asking the Lord to do it again. That's the point. Whatever he's remembering about God's faithfulness, he says, do it again. We need it right now. He recognizes the pain of his moment and the sinful choices that have contributed to their need for restoration. He can understand that he has sinned, that they have sinned, that there's this sense of God's wrath over the people. And he says, we need restoring. We need help. Will you come and rescue us? Literally, he says, restore us again, O God of our salvation. And then in verse six, he says, will you not revive us again? 
that your people may rejoice in you. We're going to spend time thinking about restoration and reviving. Tim Keller, he writes, gospel renewal is a life-changing recovery of the gospel. Just think about that. He says, gospel renewal is a life-changing discovery, recovery of the gospel. Personal gospel renewal in the individual life means that the gospel doctrines of sin and grace are actually experienced and not just known intellectually. This personal renewal includes an awareness and conviction of one's own sin and alienation from God and comes from seeing in ourselves, this is important, deeper layers of self-justification, unbelief, and self-righteousness than we ever, ever knew were actually there. Corporate renewal, corporate gospel renewal, which has sometimes been called revival, is a season in which a whole body of believers experiences personal gospel renewal together. So remember what we're talking about. We're talking about why we need gospel renewal. A couple of reasons. Number one, let me give you the example of the parable of the prodigal sons. If you're familiar with this, if you've been in the church for a little while, it may be familiar. If you're new to Christianity, it may not, but it's a story that Jesus tells about two brothers. One is a rebel, one is a, a law keeper. One leaves home and he goes and spends everything. One stays home with his dad. He's the good boy. He's the religious kid. He's the one who's doing all the right things. We understand very quickly in the story that the younger brother, that he's gone out, that he's kind of snubbed his nose at his family, that he's insulted his own integrity, that he spends all the money that his dad has given him in reckless living. He literally has nothing in the story. And we kind of get the fact that he's a rebel and he's a prodigal. But what we don't realize in the story until Jesus starts to break this story open is that the elder brother's more lost than the younger brother. This is what's so shocking about the story, because here's a guy who goes, I'm obedient, I do the right thing, I keep all the rules, I do what dad wants me to do. He's a bit of a brown noser. He's always around father. And so then the younger brother, he goes and he spends everything, he comes home, and the father blesses him. But then the older brother, he's looking at it and he goes, man, you haven't blessed me. This younger kid gets to go out and spend everything, and you're going to throw a party for him? You're going to put a robe on him? You're going to put a ring on him? Put sandals on him? You're going to reinstate him as a son? What about me? See, he has grown callous to the reality of the affection that was already his. He's already at home, and the father goes out of his way to say, Son, everything I own, everything I've accomplished, everything that I have, it's actually yours. In this elder brother, he has forgotten God's love. He's forgotten God's mercy. We know that the younger brother forgot it, but then he tasted it when he came running home thinking that he was going to be reinstated as a servant. But the father said, no, 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 you're not going to be in the slave quarters. You're coming home to my house. And the elder brother forgot how good his father was. He got lost and his heart grew calloused. Intellectual ascent without allowing it to go deep. That's why we need gospel renewal. Some may call this dead orthodoxy, knowing the truth, but not really caring and not allowing it to go into our hearts. In James 2.19, we read, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. See, intellectual assent to Christianity is not enough, is it? I can know the ideas, I can know the doctrines, I can know the truth, I can assent to the concept of sin, I can assent to mercy and grace and love, but it doesn't impact me at a deep enough level. It hasn't shaped my life. 
And so I need to be renewed so that these principles, these ideas go deeply into my soul and deeply into my heart and begin to shape all of my life because we have a crucified Savior at the center of our faith. God himself has died. He's not a tangential part of your day. He's got to be the centerpiece of your life. And so often he gets relegated to the sideline. Like I've just kind of grown a little sleepy to the reality of God's mercy and God's grace. We also need to be personally renewed because of the soft powers of assimilation. Let me tell you what this looks like. This is secularism. Just like the people of Israel in Psalm 85, the values, the traditions, the storylines around us are powerfully formative. There's a book that's entitled Disappearing Church. We don't want to be a disappearing church. But there's a book entitled Disappearing Church by Mark Sayers. He's out of Australia, and he says the options of post-Christianity operate in the mode of what foreign affairs experts call soft power, an indirect yet powerful sort of influence. They don't bludgeon you out of your faith. They subtly coax you, each option quietly proclaiming a kind of gospel in itself in which the good life can be yours. This soft power is lubricated by technology and the promise of consumerism. Through the mythologies of advertising, media, the internet, and the instructive example of celebrity, a vast mental world is daily constructed in our minds, painting the possibility of a godless utopia, a secular heaven on earth in which an individual life infused with pleasure, peace, and possibility is achievable this side of death. Do you understand what he's saying? Do you capture that like beautiful nugget about the soft power of assimilation? What he says is we are being discipled. And a lot of the Christian experts who study this, they essentially say the church is losing the discipleship battle. You are being discipled by your screens. There's so much information coming at you. It wants your attention. It wants your affections. It wants your desires. It wants you to spend money. There's all these things that it wants from you. Do not sit at the bus stop and just think for a moment. Pick up your phone and give us your attention. Give us your desire. There's so many things vying for your attention these days. And what he writes is, there's this vast mental world that's being constructed every single day. We live in a moment where this is part of the reality of waking up. It's tempting us to believe that we can have the kingdom without the king at the center. You hear that? It's tempting us to believe that we can have the kingdom. All that Christianity promises, peace, righteousness, love, Mercy, forgiveness, togetherness, unity, tolerance, all the things that secularism says are valuable without Jesus. And so what you end up with are counterfeit versions of these beautiful things that Jesus says, they start with me. They come from our God. But these don't come from us. We can't have a human version of justice and righteousness. We can't have a human version of mercy and peace. These things come from him. You can't have a secular version of happiness and satisfaction and meaning without feeling absolutely bankrupt and void. The rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10 is a perfect example of someone who has been convinced that a life of comfort is better than a life of following Jesus. He comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He, he rehearses his past. He rehearses the good things that he's done. And Jesus says, well, go and sell everything that you have and follow me. And the man walks away sad because he thinks to himself, well, I guess it's better to have what I have, find my definition of meaning and happiness, than to follow Jesus. He wanted the kingdom, but he didn't want the king. 
See, and that's what we have to bump up against as Christians trying to make sense of life in this moment. So many of us looking for satisfaction in the world around us. Not only did the writer of Psalm 85 do that, where he says, restore us. We've gotten lost. We have sinned against you. We're living for ourselves. But we do this too. And gospel renewal awakens the human heart to what is actually true. Those soft powers of assimilation begin to shift and change and the narratives become clearer. Right, so why do we need gospel renewal? Number one, because we fall asleep to the incredibly beautiful and important doctrines of the gospel. We fall asleep. They become dull in our lives and our hearts because of the reality of assimilation. And also, I'm going to get here in point two, because we are hardwired to achieve. So let me take you there. Gospel renewal, what it looks like. I'm indebted to Keller's chapters on revival in a book called Center Church. A lot of wonderful ideas about revival and some of the history, so I'll be pulling from him here. Let me say up front, what does it look like? Just like a marriage isn't simply about these external behaviors, and it's really a matter of affection and love for your spouse, in the exact same way, gospel renewal is about affection. It's about desire. It's ultimately about the human heart. Right? It's not about behaviors per se, but it's about the heart being changed so that behaviors have their proper place. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, he looked forward to a moment when the salvation of God would bring what it would bring when he said this in Ezekiel chapter 11. He said, and I will give them one heart, and I will give them one spirit, a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules to obey them, and they shall be my people. In Romans 10, 9, the apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raises him from the dead, you will be saved. He says both things. He goes, you have to believe there's an intellectual side to Christianity. He goes, but it's got to go from head to heart. It's got to shape you. If you believe, and also if it goes down deep into your heart, and you know that Jesus is your Savior, he goes, then salvation will be a part of your life. The heart is a huge part of Christianity. Revival and gospel renewal are a matter of the truth of the gospel coming home in your life and in your heart. See, and religion, this is important. Religion is the belief that if I obey, I will be accepted and loved is such an effective alternative to the gospel. And the gospel simply says, because I am accepted and loved in Jesus Christ, I will obey. And the major distinction, of course, is one plays entirely upon the will and the other one plays entirely upon the heart. Let me try to break some of this down for you. It is so easy to slide from the gospel into religion. In one moment, I am celebrating the fact that I am saved by grace, that Jesus has come for me, that I don't have to do anything. And then the next moment, I have slid over to this other space that says, you know what? I'd love to define myself. Human innovation, a human intention, part of who I am, bringing me to the table. It's very easy to slide from gospel to self. It's very difficult to slide from self back towards the gospel. The great reformer, his name was Martin Luther, he said the reason this is the case is because in the human heart, he noticed as he studied the scripture and also as he studied his own life, he said the default mode of the human heart is works righteousness, self-righteousness. This is what it means to be a human being. I prefer to create my own examples of righteousness and then present them to God and say, because I've been so righteous, won't you bless me? Won't you give me what I need? Won't you give me what I want? But look again at Psalm 85, verses 6 and 7. 
The writer says, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. See, what he's saying is personal renewal is always marked by a fresh seeing again of the gospel. This is why he says, show us your steadfast love. The psalmist cries out for the steadfast love of the Lord. Give us a fresh perspective of who you are and what you're up to in the world. And see, what religion says, let me spend a moment on this. Religion says that I have to obey in order to get that steadfast love. Do you feel that in your life? Do you ever sense that tendency in your soul to kind of bend in that direction? You are a room of very successful people. It would be nearly impossible for this not to be a dominant part of your thinking about how to relate to God and to one another, how to establish an identity. In a room of successful, educated, highly efficient people, you're saying, how can I have an incredible work day? How can I have an incredible weekend? How can I get ahead in the world? How can I get that promotion? How can I move to that next neighborhood? And you are scheming along the way because God has gifted you to be able to think that well. This is what it means to be successful. I'm starting to establish my own identity. I know who I am. I don't have to lean into mercy. I don't have to lean into grace. Religion says that I have to obey in order to get the steadfast love of God. I have to be a good person in order to receive God's blessing and God's acceptance, which is why religion is ultimately about you. See, God, I actually need something from you. I need that promotion. I need that new home. I need that person. I need that relationship. I need something from you. And so if I do well enough, if I'm obedient enough, if I come to church, if I read my Bible, if I keep the devotions, if I'm part of a community group, if I do religious things, isn't that enough? Isn't that sufficient? And let's just take religion out of it for a moment. Sometimes it has absolutely nothing to do with the practices of your faith. It has everything to do with the practices of your day, the skill set that you've been given, right? the gifts that you have, the mind that you've been given, the education, the CV, the credentials. This is who I am. And see, because my acceptance before God is ultimately based on my performance, it is entirely fear-based, and there's nothing but insecurity in that point of view. Because every single day I have to say to myself, I need to perform. I mean, last week was pretty good, and I feel good about myself. This week I know I have a tough deadline coming up. I'm not sure how I'm going to do. So you go from complete stability to complete instability in a moment because your identity is wavering between your performance, and you feel like you have to be on the treadmill of performance. I got to get people to like me. I got to get people to love me. I have to get people to esteem me. Yes, God's part of that equation, but there's all this fear. And guess what? Relationships consistently break down. Because I can't let you get ahead. I can't celebrate your victory because it ultimately detracts from my victory. Oh, Lord, help me. How can I relax if my acceptance is based on my performance? And because I need to be seen as great, what I do is I take the gifts that God has given me and I turn them into idols. I take money power or my marriage or my parenting, and I turn it into something that establishes me as great big me and a really little God. Religion is all about a great big you and a very small God. You are at the center of that storyline, but the gospel, see, the gospel is so different. The gospel, on the other hand, says that I am so deeply loved in Jesus Christ, apart from anything that I have ever done, ever contributed, anything that I could ever put on the table. And therefore, 
out of deep gratitude for who Jesus is and what he's done, I obey, I follow, I practice his ways, but I move into his world his way because I'm love. Do you see how radically distinct that is, but how close they are? I obey because I'm accepted, or I'm accepted because I obey. See, when this breaks open in the human heart, things begin to shift. Things begin to change. See, when difficult things happen within a gospel perspective, I can be criticized and I can actually be hurt, but my identity is not dislodged. I'm still here. There's a buoyancy within the perspective that Jesus has given his life for me. I mean, you may disown me. You may not like me. You may, not, you may criticize me. But the God of the universe has spoken love and affection over my life. And I don't like the fact that we're at odds. I don't like the fact that you've stepped on my toes. But I'm going to be able to work through that because the more powerful being has spoken love, grace, and acceptance over my life. This is what it means to understand Christianity, not just in the world to come, but it can actually make a dynamic impact in the world right now. Yes? Right now. Within the gospel, there is immense security knowing that Jesus has already been punished for my sins, which means when trials, tribulations, suffering come my way, I know it's not because of me. He's not just punishing me. Jesus has already been punished for the things that I have done. My sin has been atoned for. It has been taken away. Yes, there may be ramifications for the choices that I've made, but God is consistently a God of mercy and grace. I can look for God's hand of fatherly affection in the difficult things that come my way, knowing he's after my good. He's not after my harm. The gospel also allows me to be transparent, to stop hiding. Like the cycles of sin and shame, they begin to fade. Because in Jesus Christ, we are fully seen and fully loved. I believe that is one of the deepest pangs and, and cries of the human heart. So often because you're gifted, you are loved because of your gifts. And there's something deep within you that says, I just wish I could be loved and seen, that people could see all of me. My hurt, my shame, my brokenness, my past, and still care about me still love me. See, and that's what you find in the gospel. This is what Jesus says to you. He goes, man, the world may reject you if they see you. I see you, and you, I now call you friend. I've given my life for you. I want you. I don't just tolerate you. I love you. I want you to be my first love, and I want to be yours. It's an incredible picture of a very big God and a properly sized me. Friends, one mark of renewal that has consistently been a part of the way God has been bringing a fresh perspective on the gospel is when the Spirit of God begins to move, people begin to see just how consistently they have been basing their acceptance before God on their own righteousness. Every mark of renewal and revival, every history, people have begun to see, man, I have made this thing about me. This is all about me and my performance. Christians confess the way in which they have verbalized the belief that, yes, I'm justified by grace, but in reality, I'm justified by me and what I bring to the table. If I live a good enough life, God will bless me. And see, revival begins to happen when the Spirit of God nudges you to say, no more, enough, enough of that way of thinking, enough of that way of living. Man, I got to put myself down. I have to be able to step forward 
justification that Jesus purchased is sufficient for me. It's enough for me. I'm going to step into his love. I'm going to step into his grace. I'm going to believe the statement. I'm going to begin working on the fact that I'm always trying to get people to love me. I'm trying to be enough. And I need that to end. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, this is Titus 3. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And to live under the burden of self-righteousness, I thought about this week when I was having a conversation with my brothers, is like the character Schmeagel who becomes Gollum in Lord of the Rings. He's human at the beginning, but he loves something so much. It's become so precious to him that in the course of the narrative, this individual actually gets renamed and becomes a hideous monster who lives in the shadows. The burden of loving yourself too much. I am too precious. I bring something too great. I'm at the center of the storyline. It dehumanizes us because everything's about you. And Jesus has been opening my eyes and my heart the last couple of weeks to the reality of self-righteousness in my life. So much of my life has been built on me, my reputation, what people think of me, how I teach, how I preach, how's our church, how's my family, how do I look, all these things about me at the center of every storyline. And it's so nauseating, to be honest, but it's so easy to put myself at the center of everything. And I've been saying to myself, man, I love you, Jesus. I love you a lot. You're at the center of my life, but are you? Are you really at the center of my life? Or do so often I kind of depose you and put myself at the center of my life? Yes, I enjoy the justification that you give me, but you know what? I kind of like justifying myself too. And on good days, I celebrate it. On bad days, I'm filled with fear. Filled with fear. And Jesus could say, no more. I know more of that. Let me have the fear. Let me have the insecurity. Let me have the gift. I gave it to you in the first place. And let me have your family. Let me have your future. Trust me. Stop trusting in yourself. Man, when Christians start to confess that, then you know there's a fresh movement of the gospel. We begin to feel how much we have placed ourselves at the center of the, the salvation narrative instead of Jesus. Jesus is on the move. And for us to fill this room up, I have a vision of all of these seats being filled with people who don't know Jesus. And for that to happen, Christians have to be renewed so that we want to go out and share something worth sharing. And so renewal begins here. Let me take you to that last part, and this will be somewhat quick. Gospel renewal, how we get it, okay? How we get it. Um, <clears throat> Mark Sayers, who has a great podcast called Rebuilders, I encourage you to look it up, Rebuilders Podcast. Mark Sayers, we have to make a, he says, we have to make a shift from regular mode into renewal mode if we want to get this down deep. What he says is you need to pay attention to the things that aren't working and aren't bringing renewal in your life. You're thinking to yourself, man, I wish God was on the move. I wish I could feel more of him. I wish I understood what it meant to walk in his presence. I wish I had deeper community. I'm kind of practicing all of these things. Yeah, I'm kind of in a season of stagnancy. We're coming out of COVID. We're all languishing. You know what? I'm not really going to go there, but I do want God to do something. He says, we have to shift from regular mode into renewal mode. And renewal mode is where you just pay attention to the facts that the things that aren't working, if the things in your life aren't bringing renewal, they're not going to bring renewal. Does that make sense? 
If there are practices in your life that aren't waking your heart up, they're not going to wake your heart up. So how do I shift my life in this mode into a, a season of saying, I want to be in a season of renewal. I want God to be on the move. I want him to do something in my life. One of the things you have to pay attention to is the simplicity of a fixed identity versus a static identity. If God is going to move and grow you and change you and shape you and transform you, you cannot have a fixed identity, namely built on your performance, built on what you do. I know who I am. God has no room to move in that space. There has to be an openness to allow the Spirit of God to shift you and to grow you and to change you and to transform you. What things do I have to stop doing in order to start doing this mode of renewal in my life? In what way do I have to rediscover the gospel to see Jesus freshly again? I probably can't do that on my own. Guess how long that lasts? Two, three, four days. But if I knit myself to a few people, the significance of community, then maybe we'll go after it together. Also, Psalm 85 is a prayer, isn't it? Psalm 85 is a prayer. And renewal and revival, gospel renewal, has always been marked by contending prayer, where we cry out to God, restore us, revive us, renew me. I know my heart. You're starting to show me things I never even knew were there. Come in and change us. We begin to contend together. We pray for one another that the revival and renewal would start here, but that it would send us out into a world that desperately needs revival and renewing. So we contend. We pray kingdom-centered prayers. It's always, revival has always been marked by praying like that and a submission to Jesus. We submit to him. As modern people, we want to be changed and transformed without the loss of our freedom. But submission to Jesus, dying to yourself, taking up your cross, and following his word is the only way to truly find life. And the reality is this always results in tremendous joy. Look at Psalm 85, 6 as we close. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Joy, real joy. Not based on you, what you did this week, how great you are, what Jesus has done and how great he is. I'm gonna lead us into a few moments of prayer. Paul and the musicians are going to come back up, Cecilia, and we're going, to, we're going to sing. But I would like to give you a moment to think about your life, to think about your foundations, your identity. What is God kind of putting on your life and your heart? Revival and gospel renewal always comes when Christians begin to see that their foundation was actually self-righteousness, identity based on self. We begin to say no more. And when Jesus said it is finished. Did he mean it? He goes, it's done. All the striving, all the yearning, all of the hoping, I did it for you. And we want to embrace that. We want to say, yes, Lord, come and be sufficient for me so that I can move out into your world with a new perspective and a new heart. So let's take a few minutes. We'll pray. Paul's going to sing a song with us and over us. Just allow it to wash over you in reflection, and then we'll close with two songs.